0: Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Ponds, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear.
1: I once was told that we sometimes are a sum total of all the people that have had an influence in our life. I think there's a lot of truth in that, and then I think about all the people that have had some bit of influence in my life, and I was going to ask you that question. Can you go back in your memory and maybe select the three to five people that had the greatest influence in your life, men and women, not just one gender or the other? And just think about that for a moment, and when did they influence you? How old were you when they did? And then how did they influence you, and how did that influence play out in your life today? And what made your life different because you came in contact with those people or those people in some measure came in contact with you? And that would be a great discussion to have as you drive home from hearing this message or maybe sit around and you want to talk about something. Talk about those influencers in your life. Most every memorial service that I do and conduct, I remind the people to look at the person who's just passed and to draw from that person's life a character trait that you don't have or that you're weak in, that they were strong in to add that person to your life. In my life, um, I've had a lot of people that have influenced me throughout the years and none any less than you all right here. Those of you that have taken the time to speak into my life, whether by modeling things that I've watched in you that I've seen not in my life or weak in my life, strong in yours, but even for those of you that spoke into my life, times that you've done it with great grace and kindness, And then the two of you that just did it when you blasted me. I'm joking on that last part. But I want you to know that you've influenced me. Then I go back over my life and I see some of those that have influenced me for my, quote, career. Now, I don't look at preaching and pastoring as a career, but it is something I do. And God blesses us to take care of us through that. But that being the case, I look back over my life. I've read the sermons of Jonathan Edwards. I believe he happened to be America's greatest theologian of all time. I also have read the sermons of Charles Spurgeon and the impact that he's had on my life just reading his sermons, his writings. And then I've maybe not read the sermons, but I've heard the sermons of people that even today have impacted my life, like Jack Wurtzen from Word of Life up in Scroon Lake and Jerry Falwell from uh, the great Thomas Road Baptist Church and from others that are even alive today, from John MacArthur to John Piper to Rick Warren to people that were my wonderful faculty members and then those that have spoken in my life as leaders and Christian educators. And I'm saying that for a reason that some of those great men and women like Amy Carmichael, I would want to delve into their biographies once I've read their, their writings and I've heard them preach. I want to find a biography about them. And I want to know a little bit more about their life because my belief is that God is sovereign, that he was orchestrating and adding value to their life and shaping them so that they would shape others by their life and what they would leave behind. But frankly, the most boring part of a biography, if you ever are into reading biographies, generally would be the very first chapter. And that's because they often start with the parents and the grandparents and the location of where this person really had their beginning, if you know what I mean. But if you're smart, you look at those beginnings and you'll sense again that God was using even the parents and the grandparents and the great-grandparents and the life of where they lived and what they did to frame them. Now some of you are wondering, where in the world am I going with that? Because we've already learned over the last couple of weeks that probably one of the greatest books in the Bible, and I don't know that you can ever put a value above one or the other in Scripture because it's all given by inspiration of God. It probably would be Romans because it's often referred to as the Magna Carta of our faith. And to do that, we have to then look at the writings, and we're going to be delving into the actual writings of the book of Romans and parsing that and gaining from it and understanding the very depth and the foundation of our faith and the entire faith of Christianity from now on through eternity. Now that being said, though, that all the people I mentioned earlier, the ones I've read from Jonathan Edwards to Charles Spurgeon and the rest of them, all of them even go back to the book, which would be Scripture. And all of them will go back to the book in the book called Romans, and all of that goes back to the writer, which would be the Apostle Paul. And of course, we know the author, as we studied last week, is none other than God the Holy Spirit, using the Apostle Paul, turning it down, and then we having it today. We get all of that. But today I think it's very important for us as we begin the book of Romans the way God began the book of Romans. And that is the Apostle Paul who influenced all of those people, who influenced others and me, to look at his background. In fact, if you look at many of the writings of the Apostle Paul, you're going to find that they begin with a mini-autobiography. Unless you go into the book of Acts and then you're just going to kind of follow along what Luke said about the Apostle Paul. Out of all of the mini-autobiographies of Paul as he starts his letters you'll find that this is the longest autobiography as he sets the record straight of his personhood, what he proclaims, what his purpose for ministry was, and his passion, all in the first 17 verses. So if we grab a hold of that, then we'll be grabbing a hold of the heart of the Apostle Paul and we'll understand now why God used that man in so many others' lives and in our life now as we then begin to go through the book of Romans. So if you have your Bibles today, I'd so much like you to open them up to Romans chapter 1 And if you have your Bible, I'd like to encourage you to write in your Bible. There's nothing sacred about this piece of paper with ink that's shaped into letters that has God's mind on paper to us. But it will help you as you continue to understand God. And I know, again, according to that, to what I call educational uh, pyramid, that some of you are so new, you're still trying to find the book of Romans. Well, it's in the New Testament. It's... uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and just continue going through and you will then find the book of Romans. And so today we're going to, in the time that I have left, and I hope I don't speak too fast and I can give you some substance, but also not to overdo it. I want to give you four parts about the Apostle Paul's life as we get into a a glimpse of his life and his ministry. Because if any of us want to impact the world, that's the phrase... If any of us want to impact the world, we might want to learn a little bit from the style that was used by the Apostle Paul and how God framed him. Now we can't be him, we can't mimic him exactly, but what we can say is just as God shaped Paul, God is shaping us. And the reason God shaped Paul is for furtherance of eternity, of influencing others, just like God is shaping you and me. And so now we can own these truths to say, all right, Lord, I'm not just a snowflake in the blizzard of humanity just getting a job so I can pay my light bill. I'm here to change the world in some measure, bit by bit, person by person in some way, and how God might want that to be in my life. So let's begin by talking about the person of the Apostle Paul. The person of the Apostle Paul, and it's found just in verse 1. And there's so much in this verse, but if you understand that he lays the deepest groundwork in the early part of a book as he builds then upon. And he begins by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. We'll stop there. Let's go to the word Paul for just a moment so you do have an understanding. We did cover some of this last week, but there's more that we need to add to it. Paul actually began with the name of Saul, and Saul meant pleaded or demanded or prayed to God, requested of God. I can only imagine his mom and dad were probably praying that they would be given a child, and that child would probably be given be a man-child, and it would be Paul. So that's how he got his name. He grew up in a Jewish background. But he soon got the name Paul from Saul, moved from Saul to Paul, when he came to know Christ as a Savior. And Paul basically means little. Kind of interesting, maybe it was a time that he was becoming very prideful because he could become very prideful when you look at his early background and his upbringing, that all of a sudden he realized that now he's receiving from the Lord the name Little. Always to remember that his name meant Little, 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 Little. My name is Stanley. and My name Stanley doesn't really mean a lot. It's kind of a hokey little name. But that little name Stanley has a meaning behind it. I won't tell you what it is, but the point of the matter is it has a meaning. Every one of us has a name And he had that name of little. He was born in a place called Tarsus, which was up near the Turkey area. So if you want to know where in the region of the country, that would be there. In the region of the world, it would be there. His persuasion was he was not only Jewish, but he was also a Pharisee, so Jew of the Jews. So he really understood the Jewish belief system and even beyond that. But the unique part about him is not only was he Jewish, but he was also free-born Roman, which meant that he had access to travel anywhere in the Roman Empire freely as he wanted to because he was a citizen and he had that right to do that. But he also had what we call religious training, and this gets interesting. His religious training began when he was pretty much eight days old. And what happened to an eight-day-old Jewish boy is that he was circumcised and that marked him forever that he would be this Jewish person. And then from there, he had a dad. Of course, he was Jewish in his whole heritage. And dad's responsibility was to teach them the word of God. And so he learned to memorize scripture, Deuteronomy 6 being the first part of this. So if you're looking, where do you begin memorizing? It might be Deuteronomy 6 and start there. But it went on from there that he not only learned the scriptures by memorization of the Old Testament, didn't have the New Testament. He was taught by a guy by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a rabbi, but he was a grandson of one of the greatest Jewish rabbis of all that you might have heard of if you've been around uh, teaching like this. His name was Hillel. And so he knew the word deeply. He was very much respected for his accuracy. And that then trickled down to a guy named Gamaliel. And that person personally mentored Paul. So now you can see how God was shaping Paul before Paul ever became a Christian then to influence the world in which we now even live today, you and me. That's who he was. Now his trade was a tent maker, and I scratch my head at that, of being a tent maker, because when you think of a tent maker now, you think of someone who might work in a Coleman factory where they're making these Coleman tents that we might go out camping with. Well, back then it would almost be like he was a home builder. Now, you had the houses that were, of course, inside the city walls or made more out of brick and mortar, we'll say. But he did more of the tent, So a little maybe downscale, but he still was a home builder, a tent maker, which was a good job. Maybe he even uh, was one that was so well respected they liked him and he did it. But that followed the Talmud. Now, those of you who don't know the Talmud, the Talmud is kind of like a Jewish writing about the Jewish writings. And a writer of the Talmud said this. He said, what is commanded of a father toward his son? When I read that question I thought about what is the command command for me as a father to my son and this is what the Jewish fathers would do for their sons and dads listen up for a moment and you single moms there may be something in here that we can own He says, it's to circumcise him. That means mark him as his son. Now, I don't mean you have to go ahead and circumcise your kids. And if your kids are out here, don't know what that is. If you're a guy, ask your dad. If you're a gal, ask your mom. But the point of the matter is they were marked as Jewish. In other words, there was a mark. And for us, it might be to make sure that they have come to know Christ as their Savior. Make sure that they are marked, maybe through baptism and understanding what it is. Marked through getting them involved in a local church on a faithful, regular basis so they can grow together. They're marking them. And it goes on to say... That he would teach them the law. In those days, it would, of course, be the entire law. And it would move into some of the historical teachings as well, but primarily the law. Basically, what he was doing then was maturing the kids. So as a parent, you not only want to mark them as a Christian, but you want to mature them. But then one more thing that they did, and I think there's a wisdom in this, and that would be that he would teach them a trade. The father would teach the son a trade. In other words, he would take them to a point and make him learn something that would be able to provide for his family that would be honest. So some of you, you might be marking your kids by making sure they're saved. You might be maturing them by bringing them to Sunday school, small group study, teaching the word, teaching them how to have devotions. And at the same time, you recognize that you've got to launch your child into society to make a mark to provide for the basic needs of his family, but also maybe provide further for Christian work later on. And so you're preparing them for college. Very much like he was properly... Able to do that. One side note, and that is that while he did receive funding for some of his ministry, he also made tents on the side, so he would be what is known as a bi vocational pastor, which means that he received funds from both. He didn't get rich out of this, he just did it to survive. Sometimes he would make tents, sometimes it was enough to support him. He was also educated with Greek literature, so he understood the Greek culture tremendously, and you're going to see that pop out a little bit later on this morning. He was also something else, and this is what's so new to some of you that are learning this about Paul. Here's Paul. We know that he was a persecutor of the Christians. He was a blasphemer of the Christian God, Jesus Christ. And you'd say, why? He was such a wonderful man. He knew all of this stuff, and he knew the Old Testament. Why did he beat up on these Christians so much? Is because if you remember, the Jewish people looked at Christ and said, Christ cannot be who he claimed to be. He's trying to claim to be God. He can't be this person, this Messiah. So what they wanted to do was to eliminate the threat of Christ because Christ was developing a fellowship, And so they were going to eliminate everybody who then worshipped Christ. So they're wiping them all out. Sounds very similar to what we're reading about today in the Middle East. Said it was done more by Jewish people, specifically against Christ ones. And so he did all of that very passionately in that particular realm. Now on conversion, he was going to a place to get more men, women, and children to throw them in jail, potentially then even to be persecuted to the point of death. And on that road, God sovereignly decided to step into his life through Christ. There was a blinding light and he was instantly converted. We believe at that time he came to faith alone and Christ alone and he trusted Christ as Savior. And from then on, his life really began to change because he went to a new location as he was heading out there and from then... He got his sight back again. He was sent off to the desert for three years of further training and my goodness, he has now written thirteen of the New Testament books, fourteen if you think he wrote the book of Hebrews. So this guy had a tremendous Christian conversion but if you 're looking now, what did he do as Christianity as a leader? He had three titles: one he was a pastor, he was a teacher, and he was apostle. Now, for some of you, that's kind of like, okay, ABCD, all right? Now, what it is really is, he was a preacher, which means he foretold the word of God, especially the gospel, helping people come to faith in Christ, and then to embrace that truth once they were Christians. The teaching part is similar, but a little different. Now, they're teaching the word so that once they know the word, then he preaches to them in the teaching aspect to get them to do it. So the teaching is to know it, the preaching is to motivate them to do it. Now what the apostleship is so very valid in his life is because he would go to a virgin area and nobody there, virtually no Christians or maybe only a few salt and peppered in this community. He would go in. He would preach the gospel, generally to the Jews first, but also to the Greeks. And then they would be coming to faith. He would then teach them the word, launch them to do this, and a church was planted. So you have teacher, preacher, and apostle. I'm going to come back to apostleship in just a moment. Now, in his writings, we mention about the things that he had written, but his appearance is often questioned. What did he look like? Was Paul thin, tall, short, dark? What was he? Did he have a beard? No beard? What was he like? Well, the great scholar, uh, Herbert Lockyer, in a book called All the Men in the Bible, he did some research, and he came up with this conclusion of what he looked like. And I, I don't know whether he did or not, but in a way, I almost hope that he did look like this. Are you ready? Paul's bodily size and appearance looked very much like Arnold Schwarzenegger. No, that's not what he said. He said his bodily size and appearance may have been against him, judging from a second century apocryphal description of him. Quote, he was a man little of stature, short, partly bald, with crooked legs, a vigorous physique, with eyes set close together, and a nose that was somewhat hooked. Now, how many of you would love to just run up and marry that guy, gals? I don't think he was so good looking. Whether or not he was, and I could only imagine, and you do this with your own sanctified imagination, if you really look at his history and all that he went through after he was a Christian and all the persecution he went through, if he looked bad at the start of his ministry, you could imagine what scarred up and beat up and beat down guy he must have looked like toward the end of his ministry. Now, why am I saying all of that? That's again letting you know that as God allowed or shaped specifically Paul, God is doing that with you. If I look at his life and if he did look like what I just read to you, and he was like that in appearance, God still might idly used him because it wasn't about what we have on the outside it's what we have on the inside of what I hope I have time to teach you today that was in the life of Paul All right. now the question is is how did he die I know he quit breathing I got that but how did he die the best guess that we have through as much research and background is and if the legend is true it said that his life ended with honor he did not deny the faith at all he did die pretty much alone he said only Luke is with me send Mark brings some stuff to bring with me, but basically that was the end of his life. It said that um, his foes led him out to a place called the Appian Way, which is kind of like a public roadway, where they severed his noble head from his frail body, and he died apparently, triumphantly, for the Lord he dearly loved. So when you see pictures of people getting beheaded today, as you see now of what's going on in the Middle East... I want you to just for a moment realize that as much as where our heart goes out to every one of these journalists and people that are traveling and people we don't even see, know about, they're being beheaded just every day, men, women, and children. I want you to think there was the Apostle Paul who died pretty much alone. And then he said, and Jesus is my defense. And he died with great praise at the very end. He died not with indignity, but with great dignity. Well, that's a little bit about the Apostle Paul, and you can get a whole lot more, but that's just telling you a little bit about him. We haven't even gotten into his autobiography. So it says, Paul, and what is he doing here? He is writing a letter. So for those of you who we talked a little bit about the scroll last week, let me tell you about what it was written on. There was two types of uh, 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 objects you would write on. One would be called papyrus. That's a special kind of a mashed up piece of uh, 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 bark, and it's done in such a way that it's... um, Uh, flattened and dried out that you can then write on it. By the way, it would be expensive to write on that because the process of just getting the papyrus to get all of this together upon which you can write. The other was we call vellum. Vellum was actually animal skins that were beat so thin that you could then write on it. It lasted a lot longer than the papyrus did, but at the same time they would write on it. It was even more expensive. That's why when I tell you this, this will be even more profound for us. When they did write in those days, the writing would only be about 150 words. It was just short little notes, little quick little things, like a sticky note almost. I know it's a little broader than that, but about that. Cicero had written something very long and he was thought about as being someone that wrote a treatise. It was so long, it happened to be more than 150 words. It was 4,500 words and they thought, my goodness, what Cicero just wrote for us to have today. It was a massive treatise. Until you read, just the book of Romans alone has 7,100 words or thereabout in the original language. Can you imagine how much of this truth that God so much prompted in the heart and the mind there of Paul that he would then write this to be able to do that? So while he was saying, bring me the parchments, bring me the stuff upon which to write, he had so much that was inside of him. I remember one time I was taking a group of people to the Holy Land. I was hosting that group with Carol, and one of our Bible teachers I asked to come along with us was a guy named uh, Charles Ryrie, a great Bible scholar out of Dallas Seminary. And so we were walking up on the, the Mount of um, on the um, Sermon on the Mount, okay, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. And he was frail at the time, and but still enough to walk along. We're going to the big tour buses; those three buses there, loaded with people. So I'm walking with him, and then I said. Dr. Ryrie, you're a prolific writer. In fact, you even have an edited version of the Bible called the Ryrie Bible. And I said, do you have any more books inside of you? And he said to me, I thought this was very profound, he says, I don't know that I have much longer to live because all along I felt there was a book inside of me that I had to get out to the people. He said, the closest is I need to re-edit my Ryrie Study Bible and the New American version because they've come out with the latest version of New American. I think I have a little bit I need to rewrite my 1st and 2nd Thessalonian commentary because I want to bring it a little bit more up to date but inside of me there's nothing else and frankly I have not read any more books that's inside of him. Why am I telling you that? In Paul was this incredible amount of God information that God was pouring on him so everywhere he went he either wrote and it watch this and it, it, it wound up in scripture because God said that had to be in the Bible or in the canon but think about all the other stuff he wrote that wasn't in there I'm looking at all these CDs that we have of my sermons they're just piling up in the office nobody wants them you know? they're just piling up there you know? so we have the, the dozens of those maybe hundreds of those nothing compared because none of that is inspired of God this isn't as close as it's under inspiration is when I might be reading scripture and then that scripture would have been inspired but not me So that's a little bit about the background. So we move from Paul. You're saying, man, we're going to be in this book for years. Well, no, I'm going to pick up the pace in a little bit here. It says a bondservant. Actually, that's a word that means slave. The reason it's chosen the word bondservant is because it kind of morphed from the word slave. Slave means you own me. Whatever you say, I will do. I have no rights. I'm nothing. I do this whether I feel like it or not. It's all about you. That's slave. A bondservant was someone who still was underneath the bondage, the enslavement of the person who owned them. But he then had the opportunity to get out from that, but he put himself under that. So in other words, he became a non-slave, but by choice, not because he couldn't pay his bills or some other reason. He chose to be put back into this situation. That's why some of your commentators or commentaries will say it's a servant. Yeah, it means servant but it also means slave. Paul being a Jew goes back to the Old Testament where in the Old Testament time it talked about a person who was released from slavery but he liked his master so much he would then be allowed to be a slave of the master. The master then would keep owning him and would identify that particular person by taking his ear up to a doorpost, taking an awl which is kind of a pointed instrument put it up to his ear and kind of pierce his ear so forever you would know that's the person. Now, Back in those days, you have to understand, they did it because they wanted to. But at the same time, they were still slaves. They still had to do it whether they felt like it or not. Now, this is where I'm going with this. In this passage... Paul begins by saying, Paul, a bondservant of Christ. So true, he was a slave. He says, I don't own anything. Everything belongs to the Lord. I don't own myself. He bought and paid for me. He is my master. I totally rely upon him to take care of every bit of my needs. And he is to protect me until the time he wants me to be home with him. I look to him to do this. And I have no rights, none. I have responsibilities, but I don't have any rights. And I give myself to the Lord. And so that's a slave thing, but it's done out of a loving relationship. Which now, this is the key. And I have not found any of this deeply embedded in the commentaries. And i got 23 of these in the book of Romans just in my office alone. And that is that what really drives Paul as what you're going to see, what his passion is, what his ministry is, all that. You're going to see all all of his writing. It's not like he has a love for lost souls. It's not like he has a love for Christianity. It's not that he has a love just for people. He is driven by his ultimate, complete surrender to Jesus Christ from a heart, that says, I love you, Lord. And so that love is the love that sustains him to go through all the other junk he's gone through so that we could have what we have today. So yeah, he does love us because he loves him first. And the reason he loves us, we're talking now, Paul, the reason he loves us and the people in those days is because he loves the Lord. Watch this now. And the Lord loves us, and so he loves the Lord, and he will love what the Lord loves. And I'm going to flip it. And I also believe he hates what the Lord hates, which would be sin. That's another whole sermon, but let's get back to this. So he's a bondservant, and I love that because he didn't have to say that. Why did he say that? The bondservant was a trigger phrase to the Jews that were there in the church, born-again Jews, all right? But it was also a trigger word because most of those people were not the uppity-ups. They were mostly slaves themselves. So basically he's saying, hey, I'm writing to you guys. We're very much alike. I'm just a slave of Christ, and I know what slavery is a little bit about, but mine is towards the Lord. And he says, I'm a follower of Christ, and oh, how beautiful it is. If you look through this whole passage, just in verses 1 through 7, you're going to see a reference to Jesus Christ found at least nine times in those seven verses. But let's talk about the word apostle. He says, Paul.
0: You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida.